Hello and welcome to this edition of the PLUS podcast. Cosmic Imagery is the title of a new book by John Barrow, who is a professor for mathematical sciences at the University of Cambridge. The book looks at some of the key images in the history of science, from ancient drawings of the zodiac to the amazing pictures taken by the Hubble Space Telescope, and from the iconic double helix of DNA to the equally iconic image of the flying saucer. I was particularly interested in images that are to do with mathematics. But I started off by asking him what gave him the idea to write this book in the first place and why he chose to write it now. Well, it soon became clear to me and I think perhaps to many people that in recent years we've been witnessing something of a revolution in the way that science is presented, both at the research level and to the general public on paper and in talks and lectures and in teaching. We have all sorts of visual representations, video, webcasting, PowerPoint, which produce images of a quality that would have been unthinkable just 15 or 20 years ago. Even uh, today, researchers publish work in visual form. They may publish a video or a simulation of a complicated process. So we're beginning to see pictures and images on, in very high quality forms in the forms of movies as well as still pictures. And these developments, I think, are influencing science in a very dramatic way. So it led me to think back as to what other revolutions perhaps took place in terms of printing, new instruments, or just good ideas about representing things in science and mathematics. Every area of science or every area of life has its iconic images that encapsulate the ideas and are... Um, landmarks in history. What are the iconic images of mathematics? Well, there are two sorts. If you look on the walls of mathematicians' offices or in their common rooms at university, you sometimes find images by Escher, for example, which are appreciated for the quality of the draftsmanship, but also for the signal that they send about certain beautiful geometrical structures. The other type of image which has grown in prevalence across the media uh, are those images that we call fractals. That word was invented by Bennett Mandelbrot at the beginning of the 1970s, although the idea is a much older one. And we like these fractal pictures for reasons which I think are in themselves interesting. Most of the environment around us, trees, flowers, cloud patterns, the things in the world that our species has evolved to be in tune with, uh, are fractal in structure. And that's what captures our imagination uh, about fractals. It reflects something about the world around us. Fractals capture the way those patterns work. They take a simple pattern and then repeat it over and over again on a smaller and smaller scale. Now Mandelbrot's achievement was to combine an understanding of very simple algorithms and formulae which can be used to generate those patterns and to combine that with the computational and graphical presentational power 
that became available at IBM where he worked in the 1970s. The Mandelbrot set, the most famous of these fractals, is a structure that could not have been seen 50 years ago. We need very high power computing, formidable graphics and easy interaction with the computer to coax the structure of the Mandelbrot set down onto paper in colour. The fractals like the Mandelbrot set and others are very complicated objects, but what is significant is that they come from very simple rules. Well, this is something that we've appreciated across the whole of science, not just in mathematics, that very simple equations with completely well-behaved starting conditions, no randomness plugged into them in any way, can nonetheless have solutions and outcomes which are for all practical purposes completely unpredictable. So in physics we've come to uh, see this problem and suffer from it in many ways in our search for fundamental theories of quarks and a so-called theory of everything. You can be in possession of the theory but not be able to solve it and work out the consequences at all. Mandelbrot's work displays this in mathematics really rather beautifully. A transformation that just takes a complex number into its square and adds a constant to it is infinitely complicated. And if you study the resulting picture in the plane, at any degree of magnification, you will keep confining the entire Mandelbrot set structured again on smaller and smaller, smaller scales. So uh, the deceptiveness of the simplicity of equations is something that this work has certainly revealed. Let's move on to another type of mathematical image that everybody is familiar with and without which we can hardly imagine mathematics, and that's the graph. When were graphs first used? Well, if you stop the average mathematician in the street, uh, they all think that graphs must go back to the beginning of time. They must be as old as numbers and geometry and algebra. But in fact, uh, the first graph that was drawn, uh, and that this is a rather isolated use, is not until the 10th century. There's an example that was found in the papers of a French monk who was teaching classes to students, which uses a rather primitive form of graph to plot the positions of objects, planets in the solar system as the seasons go past. But you have to wait really until the 1300s before you find things like graphs being used a little more systematically. And this is again in France, Nicole Resme, who was a famous scientist and mathematician, a counsellor to Charles V of France. He created little diagrams which he called latitudes or forms. And uh, these were really graphs. But if you want to see graphs in the way that we understand them today, uh, plotting data, uh, representing a mathematical function like uh, y equals x squared, uh, or charting economic or other pieces of information. You have to wait till the end of the 1700s and the early 1800s. So Newton never drew any graphs or saw any graphs. 
The first mathematician who started to draw graphs of mathematical functions in the way that we do today was Johann Lambert, a great German mathematician, who uh, from about 1760 until about 1780 represented all sorts of pieces of scientific data in graphical form. So how quickly did people take to it? When were graphs as ubiquitous as they are now? Well, they didn't start to become ubiquitous uh, in the newspaper and for people who were not mathematicians until the very early 1800s. And that was brought about by William Playfair, who was an architect, an economist, uh, a great man of, man of many parts. And Playfair brought out two remarkable books, one called uh, Political and Commercial Atlas and the other called Statistical Breviary. And these were books which represented all sorts of political and economic information in completely new ways. And the books contain beautiful pictures. Uh, and in those pictures, he invents the bar chart, uh, the pie chart, all sorts of unusual ways of representing things in graphical form. One of the most famous curves is the bell curve, the curve of the normal distribution. When was that first used? In the course of researching my book, I, I tried to seek out who was the first person to draw this curve. I found that none of the leading historians of statistics could really help me about pictures. They knew a lot about the formulae and, uh, and the logic of how things developed historically. But um, in the end, I discovered, I believe it was de Morgan, Augustus de Morgan, was the first person to draw the normal distribution or the bell curve in about 1838. So after that, we gradually see this terminology of the, the bell curve come into play. And the whole of this development of the use of the normal distribution was as controversial then as it has been in recent times in the 20th century. Of course, in the 20th century, we know that all the controversy is about issues of innate intelligence and what the distributions of intelligence or achievement might be and what, if anything, that would tell you. In the 19th century, people like Ketterley, who was one of the first serious social scientists, decided they were going to use mathematics to develop what he called a social physics so he believed that the sort of work that had been done by Laplace and D'Alembert in mechanics could be done in understanding people's behaviour. And he used statistics to do that. And this was very controversial. He seemed to lean very much to the idea that there was a sort of hidden hand of determinism about this, which was unchangeable that in any population of a thousand people you should expect there to be a few murderers, a few people who are unemployable, uh, and so forth. And this produced a very strong reaction in, in many quarters. One of Ketterle's great disciples in England was Florence Nightingale. And the reason she was such a successful nurse was because she was also a pioneer statistician. And she used methods of statistics to determine whether particular practices in her hospital 
were beneficial or not. Her prominence in Britain and Ketterle's reputation thereby made statistics uh, a sort of major social issue and uh, factor in people developing policy, political policy. But there were people like Charles Dickens who regarded statistics as a great evil. What he particularly didn't like was Ketterle's concept in French, of the average man. So he regarded this simply as an excuse not to help people who were extremely poor or disadvantaged. A government could say, well, the average uh, level of employment is increasing, but then close down a factory somewhere and put lots of individuals out of work. Uh, and so Dickens was a great opponent of statistics, and his famous novel, Hard Times, with Gradgrind as the sort of anti-hero, is very much uh, directed against statistics. Uh, and Gradgrind suffers in life because he trusts uh, in average behaviour. You know, he hopes that on the average, his daughter is likely to have a successful marriage. Um, and of course she doesn't. So uh, to us it seems rather strange that statistics were so controversial as a whole, but if we recall some of the recent controversies about uh, the use of statistics in evaluating innate intelligence or whether uh, people's abilities are primarily through nurture and education, uh, it's really just a reflection of that same old debate. Now, statistics is, of course, based on probability theory. And one of the other images that you chose for your book is, um, is the image of a set of dice. Yes, some of the choices of images I made were things that have just become associated with something, almost iconic images. So, for example, the flying saucer was one that I picked. So in 1947 was when Ken Allen first claimed to have seen a, something flying like a saucer would. Uh, and dice are rather like this as well. If you look back almost to the beginnings of recorded civilization, you find gaming devices. Um, some approximate cubes like the ones we use today, but others most commonly very irregular. Um, all sorts of strange shapes. Some just pieces of bone, uh, knuckle bone. The word stokos that uh, we use for stochastic comes from the Arabic for knuckle bone. What's mysterious, though, about dice uh, is they're so old and the whole concept of games of chance is so old. But the theory of probability is not. Why is that? Well, I often wondered about this. I have two possible answers to the problem. Maybe both are true. On the one hand, if we look back in... Uh, recorded history, we find very frequently that chance is bound up with religious observance. Chance is seen as the mouthpiece of the gods. So it's, it's nothing you can mess with. Yeah, so it's not a good idea, perhaps, to, to tinker with that. The other more prosaic reason uh, perhaps is tied up with the asymmetry of these gaming devices. Modern dice are realistic for mathematics because they're perfectly symmetrical. And so you have this concept of the equally likely outcome, which is the basis of probability. But if you go back 2,000 years and you go into the marketplace, 
the fellow sitting on the floor wanting you to play a game of chance with him will have some asymmetrical knuckle bone. It doesn't have a set of equally likely outcomes. There's no general theory for it that can be publicly known. Uh, the fellow who owns the knuckle bone knows from experience which outcomes are more likely than others. But until you have this concept of the equally likely outcome, a theory doesn't help you. Let's move on to an image that certainly everybody in Britain is familiar with and many people around the world also, and that's the London Underground map. Few people realise that there's a deep mathematical idea behind this. Yes, the London Underground map is a, a work of genius at the design level. Uh, the London Underground uh, came into being uh, at about, the, about 1900 or so. The first maps uh, were made available about 1906. And between 1906 and the mid-1920s, late 1920s, a succession of rather complicated maps were created. They were traditional sorts of map. They showed you where the underground lines went uh, in real geographical space, under London. And this is horribly complicated. Lots of the stations were jam-packed close together, uh, the lines don't go straight, the intersections between different lines are complicated and peculiar, and the outer reaches of the underground are actually a very, very long way from the centre of London. Rickmansworth and Morden and Uxbridge and Cockfosters are a long way away. And so the map was hugely extended uh, in order to get those faraway places in and ridiculously crowded near the centre. Now, by the 1920s, the management of the London Underground were getting a little worried. Uh, people were not using the London Underground in the way that they had expected. Uh, revenue was falling uh, and commercial disaster was a possibility. One of the reasons it was suspected was that people regarded a trip on the London Underground as very complicated. The map made the distances look enormous, changing lines was complicated. Well, the day was saved by a young draftsman called Harry Beck, who worked for the Underground Company in the drawing office. He had a background in electronics, and he produced what he called the diagram or the London Underground diagram to emphasize that it wasn't a map in the traditional sense at all. Well what Beck wanted to do was to focus on the connections between stations. He said he wanted to look at the map as it were through a lens so that he artificially enlarges the central region but he brings in the stations that are far away to make them appear close to the centre. Everything is stretched around to give a nice pattern, lots of room for the stations. There's no attempt to reproduce the exact geographical locations of the stations. So if you try to find your way around London on foot with the underground map, uh, it will be about as useful as a monopoly board. 
For mathematicians, what Beck did was to create the first topological map, the first map where it's the links between things that matter. Imagine you drew a geographical map on a rubber sheet and you mark the positions of all the stations and you drew in the lines. If you now stretch this map, this rubber sheet, in any way you like, but didn't tear it, then you're carrying out the sort of transformations that Beck was exploring. So you're keeping each station linked to the same station that it was always linked to, but you're changing the distances between. The style of his map you can see is just like that of an electronic circuit board. All the lines are vertical, horizontal, or at 45 degrees. He introduces the color codings for the lines and the clever intersection points where you can change from one line to another, represented by the little partial circles. Beck's map really very much imprints on our minds how we think of London if, if we live there. The sociology of London was influenced in many ways by that map. People were prepared to live at the outer reaches of the underground uh, because the map made you feel close to the centre. Now, if we go back to images and visualization within mathematics, obviously we know that the human eye or the human brain is incredibly good at picking up visual information. And mathematics makes use of that already because of its heavy use of symbols. But on the other hand, the human eye also has a propensity to spot patterns where maybe they are none and patterns can mislead. So to what extent is uh, visualization in mathematics a bad idea? Can it mislead as well as illuminate? There have certainly been schools of mathematics that have sort of shunned pictures in any way. The Bourbaki group in France was very formalistic, didn't like pictures, um, wanted everything to be represented by equations. So on the one hand, you've got somebody that says, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words, um, but the counter would be that an equation's worth a thousand pictures. Unfortunately, the Bourbaki tendency tended to take the subject away from real problems, from concrete examples that you could visualize and see, and all the motivation that comes from that, uh, which dominates a lot of applied mathematics. My own view about it is there's a place for both, and you want to take an attitude rather like you do in science. Uh, sci philosophers of science uh, argue a lot about what the methodology of science should be, that we should attempt to test ideas, to falsify theories and so forth. And I think the message there is that when it comes to thinking up theories, there, should be, there are no rules at all. You can dream about them, you can see them in the tea leaves in your teacup, um, you could see them by drawing interesting pictures. Uh, so science has no rules as to how you come up with the ideas, but it has a rather definite methodology as to what you do next to test them out by carrying out experiments um, to see whether the idea is false uh, or consistent with the experiment. And I think maybe maths should be a little like this as well. 
um, pictures are very useful for coming up with ideas as to what might be true. But nonetheless, there is a definite logical and systematic procedure for proving theorems. And you can't prove them just by using pictures. And with all the new technology at our disposal now, is mathematics going to become more visual in the future? I think so. I think the capability of computer programs, not just to do simulations, but um, to explore possibilities as what might be true, um, to act as a form of artificial mathematician, this is going to grow in the future. And we will have more three-dimensional representations of structures. We will be able to walk around, as it were, inside complicated mathematical spaces and look around and see what might be true in that space, just as we do in our Euclidean space. We look around and, and we see what might be true, like Pythagoras' theorem or something like that as though we were architects in some kalabi space with an unusual mm -hmm. geometry. So I think in the future we will see more and more um, visually motivated mathematics. And this is all we have time for in this episode of the PLUS podcast. John Barrows' book, Cosmic Imagery, is published by Boldly Head, and you can find out more about many of the things we talked about in this podcast on the PLUS website on plus.maths.org. I'm Marianne Freiberger. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. <laughs>